Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. We've got four scripture readings today, but fear not, they are all fairly short, and we're going to walk through the story of Exodus. Stephen's going to read two, and then David will read two. Readings from Exodus 1 and 2. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. And readings from Exodus 3 and 13. Moses led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was ablazing, yet it was not consumed. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. It so happened that after Pharaoh released the people, God didn't lead them by the road through the land of the Philistines, which was the shortest route. For God thought if the people encounter war, They'll change their minds and go back to Egypt. So God led the people on the wilderness road. The story of God and God's people. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Thanks, David. Thanks, Stephen. We are walking through the big story of God in Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, this fall and into the spring, and we're seeing it as this drama that has five acts within it. And I know this is catch-up for most of you, but uh, we've been walking through these acts one at a time. Act one, creation, which is the moment of orientation, the great blessing where God, out of love, creates a good, whole, holy world. But then we move to Act 2, which is this moment of disorientation that we talked about last week, that pattern that shows up in all of our stories of orientation. And then there's always this disorientation, and the humanity story falls into sin and an increasingly uh, disrupted and fractured sense of self, and that's Act 2. But now we've begun, over the last week or so, Uh, walking into Act 3, which we're calling promise, this great promise of God to not abandon his creation project, that he's going to set all things right. This is reorientation. God's not giving up 
on his big story. He's going to shepherd it. He's going to steward it all the way into Act 5 of recreation. And so we sit in Act 3, and on the other side of the serpent's lie of Act 2, the fall, comes this creator's promise that he's going to stay with us. This promise is made up of three smaller promises. They're all kind of bound up within the capital P promise. But within this, small, this promise, we have this uh, sense of a promised people, and a promised place, and then ultimately a promised Messiah, that there is going to come a day where a baby will be born, and of course we know this will come at Christmas, that this baby is going to be the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of God to get humanity's story, uh, ultimately God's story, back on track again to renew and redeem and restore all things. And so between now and then through Advent and into Christmas, we'll begin moving toward this sense of ultimately what will be the finale of the Messiah, who is the promise of God born into the world at Christmas in order to set things right again. And so this promise that will one day culminate in the birth of Christ begins, though, thousands and thousands of years before we get to Jesus in the person of Abraham. When we turned the page from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12, we went from the Tower of Babel, which is like this uh, ultimate crescendo of all of the disruption of sin, and then all of a sudden on the other page, Genesis 12 comes the beginning of the promise through the person of Abraham that God is going to find a way to bring wholeness back to this story. And through Abraham, God begins to woo humanity back into relationship with himself. Abraham is the beginning of the promised people. What begins in Abraham will become Israel. And what is, the, uh, what is Israel will end up being a forerunner to the church, which will become the great communion of saints that we are all a part of. And so we see in this story that God begins to choose people. In fact, God is always choosing people. He is setting them aside. He's picking them out for a purpose in order that they might get the first taste of what God is up to to heal the world, and then they might pass that healing on to others. And so last week, we talked about that pattern that we are chosen and blessed. But then there is a sense where that, that if we're, if we have to be broken because if we are not broken by the world, by the pain of the world, then all that that choosing and blessing can get stuck inside of us, and I won't pass it on to anybody else. But there is something that happens in the breaking where my life begins to become a thing that can overflow to others. The chosenness, the blessing passes through me, through us, through Israel, through the church, and, and becomes a conduit so that others can be healed. And so God blesses in order that others might be brought into that blessing. We are chosen and blessed and broken and given for the life of a hungry world. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the people of Israel. And ultimately, we see Joseph toward the end of the story of Genesis. They find their way, Joseph's family, into Egypt as a way of taking shelter from this famine that is beginning to overtake the land. And so at first, Egypt is a sign of provision in the story. It is God's rescue in the story. But now, from last week to this week, 400 years have gone by in our story. And what began as a good thing has become an oppressive thing. 
And, uh, and so now the, the Pharaoh has taken charge of Egypt and has begun to be threatened by the Israelites and as a result has set uh, taskmasters over them. They are being oppressed. And let's look at it in uh, verse 23 and 24 of chapter 2 of Exodus. The Israelites groaned under their slavery. And they cried out. And out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I just want to start there and say what is both obvious and something we need to hear over and over again. God hears our cries. God hears our cries. God hears our prayers. God cares. God is moved to action. And God remembers. Next week, we're going to talk about how we can remember God's covenant, but we start with the idea that God remembers his covenant to us, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to his promised people. He hears their cry, and he's going to make a way to save them, to deliver them with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm. And so the way he does that is the way he always does that. God chooses someone, because God is always choosing people. He picks Moses out and he gives Moses a taste of the blessing that will one day be uh, the, what Moses needs to help other people walk into. And so if you remember the story, Moses is placed in a basket. He's floated down the river, this helpless baby in a basket. And he's drawn up out of the basket. And I think there's maybe a shadow here, a precursor here, an illusion here to that God is helping Moses begin to understand in his own story how God can rescue people from the waters, right? It's going to be years later that Moses stands in front of the Red Sea and great waters surround them, but Moses has seen God can save us even out of this kind of moment. And so Moses is chosen, he is blessed, he gets the first taste of all that is possible, but one day his blessed life falls apart. And isn't that how it always happens? And he is driven into a long wilderness season. He is now broken. And in that breaking, he one day meets God in a burning bush experience, and he gets another little glimpse of all God can do through the fire. He gets this image of how a cloud, a pillar of fire, might be used to guide people forward in their story. And so Moses is being called by God to be one more agent and, he, of, uh, and conduit of healing in the world. And he feels incompetent. He feels unworthy. He's like, he got the wrong guy. And isn't this always how we feel, right? Because Moses is not special. He's ordinary. He struggles to speak well. He's not articulate. But God chooses him. And eventually what we find is that Moses is willing just as Abraham was willing. And so he's going to lead these promised people out of bondage and into the second part of the promise, which is a promised place, a new garden that God is going to give his people to tend on the other side of having gone eastward of Eden. So let's walk through the Exodus story for a second. Uh, we know how this works. Moses confronts Pharaoh. He comes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. But when you are in power... You are reluctant to release power. And so, of course, Pharaoh says no. And this story plays out all the time. 
even in our world today. And so these two sides, Moses and Pharaoh, Egypt and the Israelites, they're going to square off in this long showdown that ultimately culminates in the, the plagues, right? And we're going to circle back to the plagues in the season of Epiphany. There's more for us to unpack there. But for now, we find that there's this little showdown that's playing out between the God of Israel and the sun God of Egypt. And finally, we come to the Passover and the God of Israel bests Egypt and Pharaoh finally relents and says, get out of here. Go away. I release you. And God's promised people are set free. And they walk out of that land of oppression and into freedom, but not so fast. Pharaoh changes his mind. And there's more to the story. And so Pharaoh and his army set out in pursuit, and the Israelites find themselves with armies behind them and an ocean in front of them and nowhere to go, and the walls are closing in on them. But Moses knows something about being rescued from the waters. And so he says, do not be afraid, See the deliverance the Lord will accomplish, and the impossible happens, and the waters part, and they walk the sea floor as if a communion procession, like it's dry ground from certain death. They are delivered with that mighty hand, and life is recreated again. One of the things we start to notice about this big story is that God is a creator God, and the God who creates life keeps creating life. To say that God is a creator does not mean he ceased to be a creator when Genesis 1 ends. It means he keeps on creating. He keeps on speaking light over darkness. He keeps on speaking shalom over chaotic waters. He keeps on breathing life into that which is dead. That's what it means for God to be a creator. I think often of uh, Thomas Edison, uh, Thomas Edison, who created the light bulb, and you all know the story, it took an awful lot of times to get the light bulb right. And if you think about it, when did Thomas Edison become the creator of the light bulb? Was it when he tried the first time and it didn't work? Or was it when he finished his creation? See, when you finish the creation, now you are the creator. So to say that God is the creator of this world of our stories, of the story, is to say that God is not going to just start the project. He's going to stay with the project. He's going to see the project all the way to its fulfillment. He who began a good work in you will yeah. be faithful to complete it. And so God is continuing to draw us into deliverance from deep waters, the Israelites escape Egypt for good. They are set free. They are saved. They are headed to a promised land. Now, there's two ways to read and understand the Exodus story. There's probably more than two, but there's at least two that feel very important. They're both very important. They both uh, need to be ways we wrestle with this text. And so there is a spiritual formation angle to this passage which has to do with we can read in the Exodus story God's heart to rescue and then guide his people along the spiritual journey. There is another lens to this text, 
which is a lens that we need to emphasize because it is a lens that this story has been understood by many people across time and history, which is God's heart to rescue and then lift up the poor and oppressed. These were an enslaved people, and God hears their cry. He lifts up the lowly. He casts down the proud, and they are set free, liberated. And so it is important that we understand both angles of this story. Just as we said a few months ago, sin has an impact both on individual identity and also on society and humanity at large. And so in the same way, we should expect that God's promise is going to have an element that needs to have, that, that, that does uh, something with the healing of our individual identity and also something that, uh, that heals humanity at large, that heals society at large. If sin fractures both sides, salvation's going to heal both. And so, today I'm going to focus on this spiritual formation lens, and then in a few weeks, Megan's going to speak, and Megan uh, is going to really walk us into this social liberation lens of this passage. And Megan is in a unique place in her story where she stands at the intersection of all of this, and it's something that's become really a, a passion that is, that is being born in her heart. And having heard some of her thinking on this, she has this beautiful invitation and challenge for all of us, and so I look forward to that in a few weeks. Today we're going to focus in then on this idea of what does the Exodus story say to us in our own spiritual journeys? What can we take away from this story uh, about the nature of the Christian life? And so we start with this idea that God's people now have been uh, delivered from Egypt. They are walking past the Red Sea and they are set free. And God says, I have a promised land for you. And so it's like, goodbye, Pharaoh, hello, promised land. <laughs> Except that's not how the story goes. And in my life, when I am saved, when I am set free, when I am delivered, I expect there to be an immediate sense of a land flowing with milk and honey, a place where I have been brought home. But the pattern of Scripture is that there is always something that comes in between. The wilderness always comes first. The wilderness always comes first. There is a uh, reality in which, like the barrenness that came before Isaac's birth, like the wrestling that came before Jacob's new name, like the far country before the homecoming, like three days in a grave before resurrection, the wilderness always comes first. And so just as there is orientation and then disorientation and then reorientation, there is, if you go to the next one for me, Chris, this uh, move of belovedness. We are spoken over in the great voice of love, but then there is wilderness, and it comes before wholeness. We notice here in the passage that God does not lead his people by the shortest route, because God thought, I love these passages where we get into the mind of God, because God thought, it's like God's just sizing up the situation, making the best call he can. Ah, I don't want these people to encounter war. They might go back to Egypt. So God led his people on the wilderness road. When we think of our spiritual journeys, we often expect them to be efficient. We think of them as uh, that God has the same goals we have. And yet we find this idea that the wilderness comes first. Yeah. And uh, so the Christian life is not a spiritual transaction. 
And I think we've done some disservice in the way we talk about the Christian life uh, in our American church culture. It is not a spiritual transaction in which I am brought out of the depths of darkness and death and immediately into heavenly bliss or perfect wholeness or perfect freedom, to use the Exodus language. We don't seem to find that matching our reality. Instead, what happens is we are set on a long journey toward God's home. And God is with us in that journey. God has meaningfully let us out of darkness, that is true, let us out of death, that is true, and yet there is still a journey we have to walk on, and it's a long obedience in the same direction. This is not a trip. It's not a vacation. It's a journey. And so it's not for tourists, it's for pilgrims. Tourists want it easy. They want the shortest route. They want the nonstop flight. They want the five-star hotel. They want the food ready and set before them. We want it easy and efficient and entertaining. Pilgrims set out intentionally on a hard journey for a sacred and transformative purpose. They've decided that this is going to be something worth walking. And so pilgrims sleep in tents and they walk with blistered feet and they have these hopeful hearts that the desert's not gonna get the last word in my story and I'm gonna move through it. And when the cloud moves, I'm gonna move too. Even if the cloud moves from a place I would rather stay in, the option is not available to a pilgrim to just set up shop and make camp forever in the highlands or in the, the, the hilltops. If the shepherd moves, into the valley of death even, we will follow him there. And it doesn't make any sense to us. Why couldn't we have just gone the fast route? But God leads his people on a wilderness road. And we should expect to find that in our stories too. And so in our psalm reading today from Psalm 84, uh, we sat with that in the call to worship and and referenced it in one of the songs. There is this uh, idea of this journey that we are on, the pilgrimage that we are on. It says this, those who put their strength in God are truly happy. Pilgrimage is in their hearts. As they pass through the Baca Valley, they make it a spring of water. The Baca Valley, Baca literally translates to weeping. So as they pass through the valley of weeping, it bubbles up into a spring of water. There are tears, and then the tears become replenishment in time, right? And they're on this journey, this pilgrimage, They go from strength to strength until they see the supreme God in Zion. Now, the Baca Valley is a place we can actually find on the map. It's a literal place. It's a place outside of Jerusalem. And so when you walk on a pilgrimage back in the day, if you're going to a festival in Jerusalem to get to Zion, which is the house of worship, God's house, you have to pass through the way of weeping. You have to walk through the wandering of the wilderness to get to God's house. And I think it's such an image, such a metaphor that the way of worship is going to lead us through the way of weeping, the way of wilderness. And so the Israelites' way to that promised place has to go on for 40 years. 40 years. It's a long time. And they are being led, but it doesn't seem like it. They don't get the finish line in view for a long time. And they are being provided for but it doesn't seem like it. They get manna every day. It falls out of the sky. I mean, miraculous provision. You know what manna means? 
literally. Manna translates to, what is that? (laughs) That's what it means. What is that? When we are in the wilderness, even God's provision is confounding and bewildering. It is not reassuring. It is not known. It is not something that tastes good. It's not how we would have drawn it up. It's like, what is that? When we're in the wilderness, we eat our questions, not our answers, right? It's the, what is this? Some of you all are in, what is this? Seasons. And so that's what it means to walk through the wilderness. One day we will feast in the house of Zion, but now, what on earth is this? And so the wilderness is a tense time of back and forth between God and his people. The people are trying to control the pace. They're trying to control the outcome. They're trying to control the way in which it all works. And so they try for a while sin management. If I just get my act together, if I just perfectly handle every little thing, then I'm going to make it quickly to the promised land. And, and then that doesn't work, so they try idolatry for a while and, and impatience, and there's testing and quarreling and bitterness and backsliding. This is the wilderness right here. I love this. In chapter 15, you get uh, these two pictures here, the song of Moses in verse two. The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. And then 20 verses later, after three days in the desert, they find no, no water and the people complain saying, what shall we drink, right? It's like Exodus 15 two is Sunday morning you're my God, I praise you. And then like Thursday morning, it's like, what am I even gonna drink in this world, you know? It's like, that's life in the wilderness. Both are realities. Both are part of the journey. There's this moment in the story where the pillar of cloud moves behind the Israelites to protect them, but all they see is that it vanished. They don't know why. They just think God disappeared. God, the God who said, I'm not gonna abandon you just vanishes right? And so the wilderness is a place of stuckness, and we cannot bring ourselves out of it. We have to be brought out of it in God's timing. God's timing is a lot longer than we want it to be. And we're given over to a season of purposelessness for a while. We can't even wrap our heads around this as Americans. What could possibly be the value of purposelessness, of not getting anywhere? This isn't where I want to be. And my will collides with God's will, and there we encounter the living God saying, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. And we see how our prayers are these laundry lists. They tend to default to just all the things I want. And I see how deep my demanding runs for an easy, pain-free, convenient life and my appetites and attachments are exposed, and all the places where every word that comes from the mouth of God isn't what I'm actually hungry for is exposed, and I'm faced with this journey that I would rather not take, and I find endless ways of trying to escape it. Wow. I'm gonna bargain, I'm gonna deny it, I'm gonna run back to Egypt, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to make it my life perfect, I'm gonna try harder, but all of those tactics don't work. And so for a time, we wonder what happened to God's promise, and in the wilderness, we have to be really patient with God. I had somebody tell me once, Jordan, you just really need to be patient with God in this season. And my immediate response, like I can't even say it out loud in a church setting, uh, I was, me, no, 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 God's supposed to be patient with me. I shouldn't need to be patient with God, right? We have to discern 
What is God up to in these seasons? We have to cooperate with God in it. We have to try not to despise this part of the journey because there are sights that we see and lessons we learn in the wilderness that we cannot learn on the highways. And the wilderness stretches out before us like this unending teacher, just sand dune after sand dune after sand dune. And it stays stretched out before us until we finally admit, I'm lost. I can't get out of this. And, uh, and even the water that I think I've found, like I finally get to it and it turns out to be bitter. <laughs> and finally we say, I'm lost enough that maybe you can lead me. And we relent, we yield, we pull up a chair next to all the stuff happening inside that we can ignore when life is easy. And we're in the valley of weeping. We're in the valley of Baca. We're not yet home to the promised place but we find God there. And he keeps company with our weary souls until they are watered. He makes the tears into pools. We are being brought to the promised place, after all. It just didn't look like the way I thought it was going to. And somehow in all of this, our pain is being healed and and transformed pain is no longer transmitted pain. And so I start to be healed so that I can then be a person of healing. But I had to be broken and it turns out that in the wandering, we have not lost our way. We are we're finding our way. So I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it, and we'll wrap up with this. He says, there is meaning in every journey that is unknown to the traveler. So wherever you are on your journey, what we can take, if that's true, what we can take from that is that there are parts of what is going on in your life that God's just not letting you in on. Yeah. <laughs> right? At least for now. Right? There's a point where Jesus says, oh, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, because everything that I was doing has been made known to you. But that's not always the case. Sometimes we just don't know what's going on. And I want you to hear me as we wrap this up. It is a normal part of the Christian journey to go through long seasons of doubt and pain. Yeah. It is a normal part of the journey. And God has not lost you. And the wilderness of weeping is actually the path, Psalm 84 says, to strength. We go through this valley of Baca from my strength, maybe to a different sort of strength. And eventually we see the God who is home, who brings us home in Zion. It's the journey we're on. One day Israel's gonna walk into the promised place. They're gonna finally walk home into the land of milk and honey and, uh, and it's gonna be good, but we're not there yet. And so we're going to leave them here in the wandering in the wilderness until next week. John Ott's going to share next week more reflections on what it means to be a wandering people, remembering, struggling with this covenant of God who is walking with us in the wilderness. Let's take a moment. We'll pray now, and then we'll come to this table. And I just want to give you a minute to do your own business with God Maybe you're in the mighty hand and outstretched arm part of this journey. And you have the song of salvation on your lips. Good. We need that. Thank God for that. Maybe you are in the what is this part of the journey. 
Go ahead and talk to God about that. Name to him whatever you need to name to him this morning. Jesus, we trust you, even when we cannot understand what you're up to. Help us to cooperate with you in every season of our soul. Amen.